We are wrapping up today a six-week look at the book of Philippians. Now, we've entitled it Thrive because we've tried to look at Philippians a little bit in a unique way. This, this so-called book, as we say, you know, the Bible is essentially 66 books. The Bible is almost like a library, right, of different books written by different authors. In this one, Paul is writing to a church. If you, if you remember the story, we hear about it in Acts, the book of Acts, the beginning of the story. Paul, Paul starts this church in Philippi. And this is some years later, 10, 12 years later. Paul once again finds himself in prison, likely in foot stockades, likely hungry. We know he's hungry because he thanks this church at some point. Thank you for sending me food, right? And so we see that Paul is writing this letter from a Roman pit, and he's writing it, in a sense, to a church that is a little discouraged too. He writes it to a suffering people, a disenfranchised people, maybe a doubting church in Philippi. So how could Paul, in a Roman cell, tied up, bound up, hungry, beaten, whipped, likely a little bit discouraged himself, how can he write a book to a church that's discouraged and starting to wonder if they've, they've gone down the wrong road? How can he write this book? And yet when we look at it years later, scholars, if you go home and Google book of joy in the Bible, it comes up Philippians. How does that make any sense, given the set of circumstances that Paul and the church finds themselves in? And so that's what we've been looking at. How could we, could we learn any lessons by looking at this story and and making it come to life and saying, is there anything here, could Paul teach me anything, that in my circumstances, despite what's going on in my life, that I could use to thrive, to overcome circumstances, and, and to find joy and happiness? You know, when the bill collector calls, right? And I know the bill collector calls. One of the things that I've discovered, I pay, I've been paying the bills in my house forever, right? Like, and some of you guys that pay the bills, and ladies know that this used to be true. The only bill you really ever had to totally pay on time was your mortgage and your, and your credit card bill because you got fines on those. But, you know, the gas and the electric, it was like, well, if I get to that this month, that's okay. It'll go. It could go another month. Well, not anymore, right? Now, like the minute you miss one of these, even the utility bills, the phone rings, and some of you are under tremendous financial pressure. When the doctor's report comes, when the teacher hands back the test, when the lawyer delivers the suit, when your spouse delivers the decree, can we, can you, can I, can we somehow amidst horrible broken circumstances live and thrive, find joy? Now, I've been looking at this for six straight weeks, and I'm telling you, I think the lessons in here are some of the best things I've ever learned. If you haven't heard these, you should go back, you should order the CDs at the Welcome Booth, or listen to them online, they're all there. And I mean, they're so practical. Paul just gives so many practical steps for living the life you were called to live, a life of abundance, right? Uh, Of abundant life. He gives practical principles, and we've been looking at them. I think if you would implement them, and I would implement them in, in my life, and we started to walk around in this town, in this world, in a city that's scared of Ebola and worried about Russia and the Ukraine and wondering what's going to happen with Israel and scared about the stock market, if you and I learned these lessons and figured out a way to live with joy and contentment amidst the circumstances, there would be no greater message that to the town that we live in. We could be no better people to our neighbors, those 92,962 people that live within one town of this church that don't know God, 
There would be no better messenger than a joyful messenger of God in a world gone mad if we could learn these lessons. So we're going to pick up today's final lesson. I think it's probably the most powerful one of all. Nancy, if you would, we're going to pick it up. This is the last one. I think this is so good. Listen to Paul from prison. He says, for I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. Really, Paul? Whatever the circumstances? So he goes on. He goes, look, I know what it is to be in need. He hasn't eaten. And I know what it is to have plenty. So again, he says, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether I'm well-fed or hungry, whether I'm living in plenty or in want. It's a real key here. I, don't think, I think we read this and we don't get it. But what is Paul saying? Paul is saying that in your circumstances, as difficult as they may be, you can be, even if you're hungry, and many of us have never been that uncontent in our circumstances, even in the worst of circumstances, you can find contentment, but it's not easy and it's not natural. You know what it is? It's learned, he tells us that twice, and it's a secret. You can be content in whatever your circumstances, but it's not easy, it's not natural, it's something that you need to learn, and in a sense, it's a secret. Now, I've been, I've been at three conferences in the last month. I am conferenced out. One of the ones we went to, um, the staff and I and, and my wife, and we went down to Atlanta, and we went to the Catalyst Conference. Catalyst is probably the biggest church leaders conference um, in the country, uh, it's held in a couple different places, but the premier one is Atlanta. And, man, they bring in the best of the best. They have the best speakers there. You know, I'm not on the dais up there. And then they have, like, the best worship guys there. They had Matt Redman there. And then when Matt Redman took a set off, they brought in Hillsong United from Australia. And, I mean, it is something else that goes on down there. Now, this is going to sound pretty cool and, and makes us sound more organized than maybe we really are. But, but we, we made a commitment as a staff that this year we would lay out our talks so we could all be working on these things months in advance. So I've known, we've known in, in general, we're going to be talking about contentment today for months. And so I'm at this conference last week, and this guy gets, uh, gets up to speak. His last name, his first name was Robert, and his last name was Madhu, Robert Madhu. Has anybody heard of Robert Madhu? African-American preacher from, uh, I think, the Washington, D.C. area. And this guy gets up in front of 20,000 people at least. And, I mean, he just blows these people out of the water with a talk on contentment. And I realized, as I'm sitting there thinking I'm going to talk about this, I said, he found the secret. He just found the secret. And so I said to myself, here's what I'm going to do. This is one of the best talks I've ever heard. I'm going to bring it back, and I'm going to play it for my church at Menham Hills, and they're going to love this guy. He'll be a little bit culturally different, and it's going to be fantastic. And I went online to pull it down, and you know what I realized when I pulled it down? It was 52 minutes long, and I said, I know these people. I said, these people will not listen to a 52-minute talk, even if it's fantastic. I know my talks sometimes seem like they're 52 minutes, but in truth, they only very rarely are. So what I am doing today is I am unabashedly, unashamedly stealing the material for Robert Madhu because I believe he has found the secret to being content no matter what your situation is. So with all apologies, because I'm telling you, even when he was doing this, even the examples that he was using as silly examples were true examples in my own life. I'm going, you're making a joke in it, but this is what I actually do. 
We'll talk about that as we go, all right? So we're going to jump in. First, we're going to look at two verses. We're going to parallel them because Paul says, you can find the secret to being content no matter what's going on in your life. Here's the secret. Here's what we're going to learn. Throw up, if you would, Hebrews 12, verses 1 and 2. You know, the book of Hebrews, it talks about this hall of fame of faith, all of the saints, all of the witnesses, all the martyrs that have gone before. And Paul says, therefore, since we're surrounded by all of these that have gone before us, by such a great cloud of witnesses... Let's throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let's run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer, the beginner, and the perfecter, the finisher of our faith. Get this. This is your God. Paul is saying to all who would read this letter, you and I, to run your race. Paul is saying that you, not we, you individually, you have been called to run a race. You individually have a life to live. You individually have a call from God on your life. You were given a race to run, and you were given the tools to run it. And what Paul is saying is that we're to run this race with our eyes Fixed on Christ Jesus. Your life has meaning. You're no accident. You're not random. God created you who knew the hairs on your head. He, in fact, the scriptures later say that you were created as a masterpiece, right? And that you were, had good works ordained for you. This masterpiece, you're an individual. You have a race to run. And in order to accomplish it, in order to reach your destiny, in order to kind of achieve what God has called you to be, called you to do, you only need to do one thing. Well, maybe two. Number one, you need to run with endurance. You don't give up easy. And number two, you fix your eyes on Jesus. Now watch this. Second Samuel, or excuse me, 1 Samuel 18. I was teaching the kids last week upstairs about Goliath, David and Goliath, when I was in children's ministry. And, and David was this young boy, right? And he takes the, uh, the, takes the um, slingshot and he takes down Goliath with five stones. And this is where the story picks up, okay? He just kills Goliath. Many of you know this one from your kids, right? When the men, when the Israelite men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, right? This was Goliath. Well, the ladies from the town of Israel, they ran out to meet King Saul. Well, he's the king of Israel, the first king. They're very excited because Saul has been leading his people, and now there's triumph, right? So the women come out to meet him with singing and dancing. And, you know, Saul is probably thinking, jeez, I am the man, really, right? Like, look at this. Look what David did. I'm the king. I am the guy. And watch what happened here. A party breaks out, right? God's people really should party a little bit more than they do. That's another story. A party breaks out, and they dance, and they sing, and this is what they sing. They sing, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. What? Saul's soul goes, what did they say? Saul was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They credit David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands? What more can he get but my kingdom? And from that time on, check this, and from that time on, Saul kept his eyes on David. Saul hears the ladies in the market singing, and he takes it as a personal insult. 
What? What did they say? David kills tens of thousands, and it's all, they're only giving me thousands? Next thing you know, they're going to want him to be king. Next thing you know, I'm going to be out of the castle. I've got to keep my eye on that guy. And when you see these two verses put right next to each other, what you see is that Saul is no longer running his race with his eyes focused on God. Saul all of a sudden starts to do one of these. Right? His eyes come off of God and they start looking at somebody else. He starts crossing into David's lane. How are you going to run a race with your eyes on the guy next to you? You see, the secret to your contentment, the secret to overcoming all of the burdens that weigh you down, where you go, man, I just haven't found, you know, you too, right? I still haven't found what I'm looking for. The secret, it turns out, is not to win the race, but to run in your own lane. You've got to stay in your lane, in the race that God created you to run with your eyes set on Jesus and not on the guy next to you. In fact, Madhu, when he gave this talk, he titled it On Their Marks. Now, I ran track in high school. I ran in college. I need to make sure you know that so you think I'm an athlete. Anyway, so when I ran, when you got in the lane, you know, you get down in that crouch and uh, the guy with the gun, what's the first thing he says? He says, on your mark. But the problem with most of us is we live most of our lives not running on our marks, but running on their marks. Worrying about what's going on in their lane. Worrying what it is that God called them to and what gifts God gave them for accomplishing their call. Spend our whole lives worrying about their mark. Not focusing on Christ, but focusing someone else. Let me give you an example of this that Madhu pointed out as a joke, but it wasn't a joke to me. Here's one of the, uh, was, this is the um, interactive portion of the sermon, okay? How many of you go to a public gym to exercise? Raise your hand if you go to a public gym to exercise. Okay. How many of you don't go to a public gym to exercise? Okay. How many of you pay a public gym but never go to exercise? <laughs> I should own a wing at Riverside Health and Fitness for the contributions I have made uh, to and taken nothing back from. Because I love the idea of exercise, but yet somehow I have a very hard time actually getting there to exercise. And I have to do all kinds of little mind games with myself to make it happen. This is pathetic. In fact, this is, you know, we're getting ahead. But in January, we're going to talk about this a little bit, right? There's a January theme. But... I have to do all kinds of things, like I have to get the right workout gear, right? Because if, if you can't be an athlete, you have to look like an athlete, right? I don't know if any of you do that, but, you know, I put, I put on certain clothes that, you know, I think when I go in the gym, somebody's going to be intimidated when they see, and, and they might step out of the way and get off the, the machine. I, I, I have to have a new pair of sneakers because the old one it might have somehow gotten compressed from being in the closet so long. So I, I need to make sure that there's proper spring. In fact, last year my kids bought me a T-shirt, Under Armour T-shirt, very cool, had all the fancy insignias on it. And then when I turned around on the back, it said, don't finish last. And I, I thought about that for a minute. And I said, wouldn't this mean I'm in second to last? Like if the guy behind me, I'm warning him, you don't want to be last because I'm almost last, right? 
So I don't wear that one because that gets to my psyche. And then when I get there, I have this one machine. It's the first, if I can't be on that machine, well, Lord, you know, how am I going to have a workout when I'm not on my machine? This is my machine. Now you want me to go on that machine. Somehow the, the MPGs over there are, are a little bit different. And then I, I put on my big headphones because i got to get myself into my, my, my mode, you know what I mean? So for me, uh, you know, I grew up in the 80s, so, you know, I got my, my uh, Vision Quest. You know, Caleb listens to this all the time. I got the Vision Quest soundtrack on. I've got some Rocky, right, Eye of the Tigers playing in my head. And I get on that machine, and I'm ready to tear it up. And I start running, I start running, I start breaking a little sweat. And I start going, man, I, this... I'm working up a sweat right now. <laughs> and I'm up there, I run it for a little while. I'm thinking, you know, I'm going to do 30 minutes. I think this has got to be almost over. I look down, it's three minutes, right? Now you do this, right? And I, 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 so now I got to figure out a way. How am I going to kill 27 more minutes off without killing me here? I got to come up with a plan. And I, this sounds pathetic. This is the honest truth. Um, what I do is I look around the room. Now, you might do this if you go and lift weights, right? If you go to lift weights, you never look at what the big guy is lifting. You go and look at what the smaller guy is lifting. And so when I'm on the treadmill, I take a little look around the room, and I say to myself, who is the fattest slob in this room right now? And I don't mean that disparaging. Well, I guess there's no other way to mean it. But when, I, when I'm looking around, I say, who, who in here clearly does not look like skinny fat like me, but just maybe just, you know, is out of shape? And, uh, they, and I need them to be a little older than me, too, in case they're just young and heavy and in better shape. And when I pick that guy out, the race is on. And so, you know, whatever that guy is doing, I need to be doing. And in an ideal world, it works out best if he sets his machine up right next to my machine. Because if, now, I know some of you do this. In the first service, they, they acknowledge, a couple of people acknowledge. When you're on that machine and you look over, what do you look at what's going on on that machine? What's the first thing you look at? How fast that thing is going, right? And time. How fast that thing's going. Really? You're going 6.0? 6.1. Keep it going, man. And I keep it going. He, you know, he starts to incline. I don't do that. I made that mistake one more time. I, that's a fool's move, right? But I just crank up a little more speed. I'm going and I'm watching my calories. I got to get ahead of his calories, right? And I got to hit that 30 minutes. And so when I get to 29 minutes, I got to finish strong. I was on this program called Body for Life, and Body for Life said the last minute of that 30-minute workout, you're supposed to kill yourself. So I cranked, I have gotten that thing up to 13. Now, have you ever gotten the treadmill up to 13? I'm not a huge guy, but I'm about 200 pounds, and when you put a 200-pound uncoordinated white guy on a treadmill going 13, you're, if you don't want to be behind, right? So I'm going full speed, I mean, ripping it up. And my wife has worried for me at these moments. and said, you're going to kill yourself or somebody else in there. Well, the minute, that minute gets done, my 30 minutes are over, I step off the trampoline. You know what I do? I look over at Chubby. I give him one of these. <laughs> I head down. I'm feeling good about myself, right? And see, that's funny and true and maybe pathetic. It's funny when it's in the gym, but it's not as funny when we spend our whole lives running a race against somebody next to us. So the question for you this morning is, who are you running against? Who are you racing against? 
Who have you set your eyes on that you're chasing after? Instead of keeping your eyes on Christ Jesus, the author, the beginner of your faith, the ending of your faith, who have you lowered your gaze to stare upon and started running their race? The race God gave them. Who have you decided, I'm going to run their race? I need, I'm jealous. I need their gifts. See, this is why the treadmill is the perfect metaphor for this, right? Think about a treadmill when you just keep comparing your life, comparing yourself to other people. You're exerting all kinds of energy. you got sweat flying, snot and spit, or at least that's what's going on with me, right? And you're spending all of your time, and your heart rate is increasing, right? And your stress levels are skyrocketing, and your limbs are flailing. And you know where you're getting? Nowhere. That's what happens when you spend all of your life in a role of comparison, and you take your eyes off of your own lane, running your own race with the gifts you were given towards the call you were given, and you start worrying about what's going on in the lane next to you. Now, if you're like me, I do this way too much. See, the number one destroyer of the destiny that God has ordained for you, for your race, is to compare yours to someone else. Think about it, those of you who know the Bible. When God kicked Satan out of heaven, what was Satan doing? What caused the problem? Comparison. He looks at God and he goes, his, his star is brighter. His worship is greater. I, I want, what about me? I want what God wants. And the next thing you know, he's cast down here. And so the number one tool of the enemy that you have that came to seek and steal and destroy you, guess what it is? Comparison. Comparison is the number one tool of the enemy. It is the cancer of contentment. You cannot be content when you take your eyes off Jesus and you start looking at the guy in the lane next to you, right? Think about when you're driving down Route 80. You ever been stuck on 80 on a summer night coming home and you're in that middle lane and all of a sudden that lane comes to a stop and the cars are flying by on both sides of you? And you say, how long can you take it? Not long. And so what do you do? You don't care what the heck happens. You jerk yourself out into that other lane. And what happens is the same thing that happens in life. When you pull yourself out of your own lane, you are begging for a crash to happen. Because I don't care how athletic you are, how strong you are, how much endurance you have. When you run like this, you're going to crash. You're never going to have contentment in your life. All you're going to be worrying about is him and her and she and they. In fact, Paul laid this out for us. I never caught this verse before, but check this out. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Paul says this about those who would live their lives not running their own race. He says, we don't dare to classify or compare ourselves with some who commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves, they're not wise. You know what Paul's saying to all of us that spend our lives worrying about how we look compared to everybody else and if we're keeping up? He says, fairly bluntly, you're idiots. You're fools. You're not wise. You're stupid. If you want to understand, if you want to, excuse me, if you, if you want to get confused about God's call on your life, if you want to get confused about why he's made you the way he's made you, what he's called you to, all you have to do is keep looking at the call he has on somebody else's life and the gifts they have. You'll never find what it is that you were looking for. See, you have a race that was set before you 
and you're to accomplish it. You're the only you God created. He created you with a purpose and with certain gifts and attributes. He's given you all you need. All you need to do is not give up and keep your eyes set firmly on Jesus. Look, if you needed other gifts to accomplish this, if you needed to be better looking, well, if I was just better looking, you'd be better looking. As a preacher, right? I'm like, ah, oh, if I was just a better preacher. Yeah, you know, if my, my race was, if that was what was needed, I'd have it. You don't need to be richer. You don't have to be smarter. You don't have to be stronger. The race that God created you for, he's already given you all the things that you need for it. Ephesians 2.10, we are God's masterpiece created in Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance. You got to run your own race. Now, the challenge is to run it without looking beside you, playing the comparison game, crashing into other people's lanes. It's what happened to Saul. Saul crashes. Why? Because he took his eyes off God, and all of a sudden he starts looking at David. You know, the Scripture is amazing. The Scripture talks about the race that Saul was given. He was the first king of Israel, and God had had called him to this. The Bible says that he was a handsome young man as could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than anyone else. Do you know the Bible says Jesus was kind of ugly, but it says that Saul was good-looking? So I'm guessing that Saul must have been a pretty good-looking guy. He's better-looking. He's taller. He's anointed by God. He's appointed by God. He is to be the king of Israel, and instead of running the race that was meant for him and keeping his eyes on God, what does he do the minute he feels something, somebody gaining on him, somebody getting something more than him? What does he do? He takes his eyes off Jesus, the one true king, and he starts caring about just being himself a king. Many of you know the story. Taught it to your kids last week. There's another guy in town, a shepherd boy. Physical stature, he really have none. In fact, that's why they sent him up on the mountaintop to herd the sheep, right? Yet this David, the scripture says, he was a man, right, with his heart set on God. With his eyes set on God. And one day he comes down from the mountaintop and he sees what the Philistines are doing to the Israelites and he sees that his brothers and the king are terrified by this giant. And because he's running his race with his gifts, with his eyes set on Christ Jesus, he picks up a sling and he takes out the giant Philistine with a few stones. And think about it, man. David is the talk of the town. They're creating David action figures. David's trending on Twitter at this moment, right? Everybody wants to be, uh, have a piece of David. And initially, initially, that's okay with the king because the king, King Saul goes, this is great, this is going to make me good. Come home to my castle. Jonathan, his son, lays down some of his clothes and says, clearly you're going to be the anointed one. Everybody's okay about this until Saul hears some ladies in the courtyard singing and he doesn't like what they're saying. He says, What? They credited David with tens of thousands, but me with only thousands? Now, if you want to know, you might say, I don't do this stuff. I don't compare. I'm going to give you a surefire way to know if you compare. And you can see it because it's in the response that Saul had, right? It's in verse 8. Check this out. Saul, it says, was very angry. This refrain displeased him greatly. They had credited David with tens of thousands, he thought. And listen to these two key words. But me with only thousands. What more is he going to get? The kingdom? Comparison in your life, in my life, it always starts with 
but me. That may be good for you, but for me. You get a call from your brother, you know, I'm the oldest. I should be more successful than anyone. I'm smarter than those other pigeons. And when, when my brother calls and he says, oh, man, good news. I just got promoted to EVP of a Fortune 500 company. I can't believe that this is happening. And so let me tell you what we're going to do, John. This is a gift for you and your family. We're going to move into a six-bedroom house. We're in a four-bedroom house now, just like you. But we're going to move to a six-bedroom house, and it's right outside of Disney. So anytime, and, and you know, we'll have an extra car here now, and we all family passes to Disney World. So anytime you want to come, we have two or three extra bedrooms. You can just come down and stay there. And do you know what I do? Thanks, man. What, what about me? I went to college. I've been working my butt off. God, I gave up a job to be a pastor. What about me? And you take little Junior out to the bus stop. You're pretty happy with how things are going for Junior over at school. Junior's gotten a couple of B's, two A's on the last report card. And then you meet Molly's mom. And Molly can't stop, Molly's mom can't stop telling you about how little Molly just got inducted into the Junior National Honor Society because they have four straight semesters of straight A's. But God, I've been taking this kid to tutoring appointments every night. $40 a night, two nights a week, $320 a month. What about me, God? I go to church. And you're a 30-year-old woman, and you get a call from your last single friend. Good news. I met Mr. Wright. How would you like to be in my bridal party? Oh, dear God. What about me? Once you become a person with but me in your head, listen to me, listen to the voice. I heard this at a conference this week. It said, what is the voice in your head saying to you? Once you become a person that has a but me voice running through your head, you will never be content. Once you become a person that has a but me voice running through their head, you will never be content. You gotta run the race you were called to run, not somebody else's race. Think about Saul. What was the beginning of his comparison? He actually wasn't all that jealous in the beginning. He thought he was still the man. This guy, David, he works for me. I'm going to take him home to my house. Everybody's going to love me. See, that wasn't the problem. It wasn't his own jealousy. And, and it really wasn't. It wasn't David. David didn't go, hey, Saul, look who's really the man. Do you hear what everybody around, around his town is saying? You see my Twitter blowing up? That wasn't the issue. David wasn't rubbing his nose in it. You know what started the comparison? Outside voices. See, I have enough voices in my head on my own. But when people on the street start singing that I'm not as great as I think I am, it's even worse. We were just at this men's retreat last weekend. It was a really, it was a really heavy time. Emotional time. We were looking at men as wounds in our lives, voices that have gotten into our heads that define us as men. And uh, you want to hear a voice that you put on your kids, that I put on my kids all the time? Why can't you be more like your sister? Why can't you be more like her? Why can't you clean your room like her? Why can't you get grades like her? Why can't you be as athletic as her? 
Why can't you be as popular as her? Why, are you, why, why, does, why don't you clean, why don't you, you shower as much as she does? <laughs> and the tape starts. You laugh because it was said to you at some point or another, right? We, still, we play it, we do it to ourselves. Here, you want to you wanna understand if you have an issue with this? Let me ask you a couple questions. Honestly, can you honestly celebrate the successes of other people? Dude, you got the promotion. I knew it was down to just someone in this office, but it's you. I am so ecstatic that you're leaving this cube next to my cube and getting that quarter office. Congratulations. Can you do that? How about this one? When you're, when you're, in, when you're in a crowd, right, and, and somebody in the company, somebody in, in your, your sphere has done something pretty good, so you want to compliment them, but there's a voice in your head that says, careful, don't compliment them too much, because if you do, they might take the keys to your kingdom. How about this one? you got to be honest with yourself, okay? Because you want to learn to be content, we got to stop this. You want to learn to be content, we got to stop this. Is there somebody in your life right now that you're rooting for it to fail? See, some of you are laughing. <laughs> because almost all of us have someone in our life that we wouldn't mind seeing getting tripped up. You know why? Because you are not running your race. You are, you are not looking. Your eyes are not fixed on Christ Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. You are running like this. We have a new invention in our lives which makes this possible at levels prior to unseen. This is why your children, by all studies, are living much less uh, happy lives and meaningful lives than they used to be. You know what it's called? Social media. I know you know what it's called because you live your life like I do, looking at all of these fantasies played out every night before you. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat. Don't get me wrong, I love it. I'm on it way too much. My wife makes fun of me sometimes. But she plays a lot of Candy Crush. That's another issue. <laughs> See, I love to post what I'm doing on Facebook. If you're friends with me on Facebook, if you're not... Heck, you know, I don't care if I know you. I'll make anybody my friend, right? We all do that, too, and pretend we have hundreds of friends. Uh, you know, I was out with my family yesterday, and you know what I did? We, we had a wonderful family time out in the pumpkin patch, and you, I, I snapped a couple photos just so you guys could see. <laughs> now, some of that is done with good heart. Like, some of it is, like, I want my family to see what's going on with the kids. Some of it's because I want to, like, I, Facebook's pretty smart, right? It basically figured out that they're going to be able to keep a timeline of your life, and you can store your memories here. And, and there's some of that that's going on there. But if I'm honest, right, if I'm honest, I only post good times and memories I want, I, I want to share, right? Like, I never, I never post things you know, I, they're all about my, my accomplishments, uh, my date nights, uh, our new cars. Has anybody ever posted? You see the pictures? Look, I know you do. You look at the house behind the picture, right? Have you ever looked and seen a sloppy house? No, because they cleaned it up before they took that selfie. That wasn't there. Nothing will get it. Uh, your comparison engine firing like social media. I never have posted doing the laundry. I've never posted picking up another dog load under the dining room table. I've never posted, just got done screaming at my wife. I've never posted, failed again as a father. I could have, but I didn't. 
And so you see, living out for me and everybody else, something that's completely untrue. And you know what you do every time you pick up that Facebook and you look at it? You look at it as a mirror to your own life and you start looking now away from God and over there and going, why can't I have a marriage like John and Joan's marriage? I have news for you. You do have a marriage like John and Joan's marriage. There are good days and there are bad days. Stop comparing yourself with other people. Stop trying to run their race and start believing that God has a call on your life and he's given you everything you need to accomplish the call. You know, you come home and you're new for focus, right? Oh, God, thank you for the provision of this car. This is a wonderful car. I love the new smell of it. Oh, my gosh, Lord, you're so good to me. Pull up, neighbor pulls in with his new Lexus. You abandoned me in this, Lord. I don't understand. And I go to church. <laughs> I'm going to close with a, a, two personal stories for you, and I'll be done. First comes out of this verse. Um, First Timothy. Paul, again, Paul gets this, and he's trying to teach it all over. This is all over the scriptures. First Timothy is writing to Timothy in chapter 6. He says, Timothy, look, some people think that godliness... That following God's plan for your life, following your call. Some people think that this is a, is a way, is a means to financial gain. Turn on the early morning Christian TV, you'll see a lot of that. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Paul's saying this, he's saying that great gain isn't what you think it is. It's not beating everybody. It's not racing them to more stuff and better stuff and newer stuff and bigger stuff. That's not the great gain. He says it's not gaining in a race with other people. He says if you, if you want great gain, you need two things. You need godliness. You need to understand that you were called by God. You have a purpose for your life. You need to be in a relationship with him, following him, following your calling, be, being happy with the attributes he's giving you, believing he's giving you everything you need, the gifts to run your race with your eyes fixed on Jesus. He says if you want to have great gain in your life, number one, godliness, follow this call, live out of your gifts, and be content. And the number one thing that will rob your contentment is comparison. Comparison is like cancer to contentment. And he goes on, he says, here's why. Because you brought nothing into the world and you can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we'll be content with that. Good luck basing a television ministry on that one. If we have food and clothing, we'll thank God for that. Because, Paul says, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and in a trap and foolish and harmful desires and they plunge people into ruin and destruction. Think about Saul here, right? He says, because the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Verse 7 says so much. We bought, he said, Paul says, we bought nothing into this world and we could take nothing out of it. In other words, think about this. Do the inverse of this in the language. In other words... If great gain is having lots of stuff, acquiring lots of stuff, material stuff, accomplishments, accolades, fame, opinion, if that's really what great gain is, then when we die, you gain nothing. You lost it all. But Paul, in this same letter to this church at Philippi, he says, see, if I live, I'm going to live for Christ. And if I die, it'll be gain. Some of you got the email this week, if you're on our email list, about my friend and your elder, Scott Pretty's dad, Gene Pretty. Um, Scott was down there just a couple weeks ago. His dad, this week, took a pretty dramatic turn for the worse, and he passed away suddenly on Friday. Specifically, Gene, in his instance, 
he was a deep man of God. He gave his life away serving God. He, he, you know, Scott will tell you, they never had any money. So we didn't have any financial gain in this life serving Jesus as both a, a missionary and a pastor, even in our church. And in this life, unfortunately, the world would look at Gene and say he wasn't rewarded for it. He didn't get worldly gain. Some of you even know the story that a little over a year ago, Gene was putting his pajamas on in his bedroom and he fell. And, and just in a, in a crazy accident, he hit his neck just the right way. And Gene spent the last year plus unable to move, paralyzed from the neck down. And Gene died this week. I'm telling you, Gene Pretty has gained this morning like you and I long to have. This morning on the first Sabbath of his, of his days in the kingdom, he sits at the wedding banquet of the Lamb and, and this Jesus that he's worshipped and, and, and given everything for his whole life, this Jesus is pouring Gene Pretty a glass of wine. And I know Gene Pretty, it's probably the first real glass of wine he's ever had. And this Jesus is ripping off a big hunk of bread, the best bread that he's ever had. And he's looking into the face of Jesus and he's, he's communing with him and he's celebrating with him. And when the meal is over, this morning, Gene Pretty is going to do something he hasn't done in a year and a half. He's going to stand up under the power of his own two feet. He's going to push his chair in. And he's going to go join in the dance of the redeemed. See, for Gene, to live was Christ and to die is gain. I have to band to come up. I want to tell you one last story that's a little bit of a personal story. Actually, Madhu ended with the story, and it made me reflect on my story just over these last couple of weeks. You see, when we went down to Catalyst, I sit there in the audience, especially when I see a guy like this Robert Madhu speak, I go, man, I don't even know why I, I preach. Like, I stink, you know? And I know you'll say nice things later, some of you. <laughs> But th this guy, was he was something else. And I got done, and I said out loud to the team, I don't know why I bother. I should just play videos of this guy. So then we go to district conference this week. And I'm sitting at district conference. And they get a guy up there. I mean, this guy had the crowd whipped into a frenzy. They were giving him a standing ovation. He had five minutes to go yet. If he had told them, walk out to the beach this afternoon, swim to Europe, I'll meet you there, I'm telling you, half of them would have made it. He had them so whipped into a frenzy. And I was sitting with Steve Fisher again, and you know what I did? I looked over him and I said the same thing. I don't know what I even bother. I should just play videos of these guys or send my people to their church. And as I worked on this message and I thought about what Madhu said at the end of his message, what came to me is, do you know why you say that? It's not because you worried about the souls of the people in your church and if they're getting taught well. You took your eyes off Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith, and you put them over on those other people, and you're heading for a crash. And so here's the little, little, little deal I've tried to make with myself as I learned this lesson, as I did it this week. I am no longer going to try to be a better husband than you. I'm going to be the best husband I can be. I am no longer going to look at your Twitter accounts and say I should spend time with my kids. I'm going to be, spend the, as much time as I can with my kids. 
I'm no longer going to look at every pastor in town and wonder how I can be better like them and have a bigger church maybe than I do. I'm going to stop doing that. And from this point on, I am going to run my race, the race that God has laid out for me with the gifts that he has given me, and I am going to be the best damn John Eisman that I can be.